You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Chuck Polinick is the best-selling author of Lullaby, Diary, Haunted and Rant, An Oral History of Buster Casey, Snuff and Pygmy. His novel Fight Club was made into a film by director David Fincher. He's the author of nonfiction works that include Fugitives and Refugees, A Portrait of Portland, Oregon, and Stranger Than Fiction. His new novel is Tell All. Thank you for joining me, Chuck. Ah, Rick, here we are again. (laughs) Another year. (laughs) Another year. This is such a wonderful addition to your oeuvre because it's so, uh, you have a wonderful plot, you have great characters, and you have so many layers to this novel for the reader. Talk about the, the first layer we all encounter is this barrage of minor celebrity figures and minor uh, and major celebrity figures. Talk about discovering the ooh, the the world for this book. You know, my my goal is always to play to a strength that only books have, trying to do something that only books can do that no other form of mass media can do. And if you made a movie with Cary Grant's image in it, you would get sued. But you can use Cary Grant as a fictionalized character, or you can use Lillian Hellman, you can use Claire Booth Luce, you can use anybody you want in books without getting sued as long as they're dead and even if they're not dead you can get away with it so I really wrote a book with a cast of thousands because that's something that only books can do as a reading experience this is such a a a wonderful thing for us as readers you've written this book as a movie in many ways and it seems almost like a preemptive strike to prevent from somebody from even filming this because as you say it's something that you could only read experience as a book talk about that decision to write this as a a, in a filmic manner literally right to uh, use a lot of filmic production language to establish each scene and to to structure the book Um, for years for most of history films have used the language of novels in order to set their scene, you know, uh, in a galaxy far, far away, that enormous chapter that recedes toward the horizon. And so I thought it was about time that books started using film language in the same way that films have always used book language. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, when you, as you um, created these, your two main characters, uh, Hazy Coogan, um, and uh, Catherine Kenton. Catherine Kenton, thank you for reminding me. Uh, could you talk about uh, the kind of research you had to do? Because there's so many names that pop up in this book. Some of them we know, some of them we don't know. Uh, when you were writing this out in the, your first draft as you, as you created this book, did you start out with all, front-loaded with all the things you needed? You know, I actually wrote the first draft with silent movie names, which were really overwrought, which were names that sounded like drag queens or, or racehorses. And most of them were so incredibly obscure. That was the entire point, was to populate the book with people who, during their time, were the most famous people in the world, people who, who everyone expected their work would be known for the rest of human history. And within a decade, even two decades, they were completely, completely forgotten. 
and their names no longer even sounded like human names. But my editor asked me to update the names a generation into at least the 1930s and 40s. But that's one of the interesting aspects of this book, uh, is this is really an interesting portrait of celebrity. And, and one of the things you do is you use um, typography as the great equalizer. Uh, when you put something in boldface, everything on the page, just as a reader scans the page, all the things in boldface leap out at us. So we'll see, you know, Tallulah Bankhead and Styrofoam. <laughs> right, or Jello. <laughs> or Jello, right. So talk about, you know, the, cele- the thingness of celebrities and the celebrityness of things. Well, and also the odd na- nature of proper nouns, that proper nouns uh, can be largely invented and they function almost like an animal sound, like a, uh, a sound effect or a, um, like a, the bark of a dog, that they're a little tiny bit of odd poetry. And, uh, and so it was kind of not denying that, but actually accentuating that oddness of proper nouns. Well, um, you know, as I, as I read this book, uh, I, there's a couple ways you can read this book, I think, and that's one of the, the, the beauties of this book, is you can read this book and experience the plot, or you can read this book almost like a, 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 a Wikipedia entry and spend, you know, literally three days looking up all the people and pulling in all the backgrounds. How much did you know about all these obscure names that you pulled in? I knew quite a bit about them, but only in the context of other biographies. I read dozens and dozens of Hollywood biographies. And so I knew who Jill Esmond was, and I was kind of embarrassed that my editor didn't. <laughs> um, I became kind of a snob about obscure, faded movie stars. Well, do you tell us a little bit about you know your thoughts on, on celebrity because as as writer goes you're you're the kind of the rock star uh, the, the the bono of of uh, of, of writers and, and so talk a little bit about you know your experience with celebrity and how that informs this this book and your visions of of what humans are and what celebrities are and what that vacuum of that sucking howling endless void in between the two well you know I I think that so much of of it is a kind of a play of power that when you name drop you're you're taking a thing of an a kind of a recognized status and you're linking yourself to that thing and creating an association that will raise your status and so that's one big reason why we name drop is to to link ourselves and to to heighten our status and the other aspect of celebrity is that so much of it is just having a symbol or a cipher upon which people project their own selves, that uh, we don't really know anything about Marilyn Monroe, except for we know our opinion about Marilyn Monroe. And so uh, celebrities almost act as this kind of uh, screen against which we project what we want to project. Well, that's an interesting notion that you use that the celebrities as a screen because we, we see them on the screen so uh, in a sense when we when we talk about them we're putting ourselves in their movies and them in our movies of our lives in a way they, they, they personify some sort of archetype 
in the same way that the the saints did for earlier generations or that gods and goddesses did for you know earlier polytheism and so you know there's always got to be one blonde actor the blonde Brad Pitt who a generation ago was the blonde Robert Redford and that these archetypes sort of function as as the person the the platonic ideal someone identifies himself most closely with and they model a behavior uh, hopefully an ideal behavior for that type of person. One of the interesting aspects is the way this book is written because as we're reading it, it there's so much stuff on top. This is a novel that I think in, explores the depths of surfaces. <laughs> she's a phony, but she's a real phony. <laughs> she's, she's 15 different kinds of phony. <laughs> you oh. peel away one version of phony, there's another one underneath. Please go right ahead. <laughs> so, um, as as I read this, you know, it, it's almost like a, I feel like a monkey trying to peel away the layers and figure out just who's talking. You have to remind yourself all the time that there's somebody talking. So this is a really interesting exercise in unreliable narrators, and also in in the way in which we assemble our personas, because as we're growing up we see aspects of other people that we find really appealing or amusing or effective. And we kind of borrow those mannerisms, we borrow those behaviors, those ways of presenting self. And we kind of assemble ourselves from this buffet of other people's selves. And so in a way I find that really fascinating because I remember as a child seeing the way someone sat or, or opened a door or a nervous tick that was so compelling that I adopted it. Well, th that's interesting. I love this idea of putting yourself together with pieces of, of other people. Um, and this gets to the heart of, in many ways of storytelling because we put together these different stories. We edit all our own lives and we take the p pick and choose the pieces we want and the perspectives we want, which also takes us back to your filmic, your choice to write this in a sense as a movie for the mind. Well, and also to Lillian Hellman as a character, because we all feel a little guilty about the fact that we do self-mythologize and we do sort of self-aggrandize and, and craft our story for best effect. And so we feel so guilty in that low-level way that when we catch a public figure doing it like James Fry, we have to really kind of attack them and drive them out of the village. They have to carry the guilt, the punishment for us, for our own guilt over that. You know, actually, I think I was about the third person to interview James Fry when his first novel came out, first book, by his biography. The Thousand Little Pieces? <laughs> A Million Little Pieces. Oh, so, oh boy, so you got right in there early yeah. on the ground floor. <laughs> right, right. And I remember telling him that I thought, this reads really like a novel. And one of the things I think that, that I really like about this book is um, your your building stuff out of quotes. There are so many wonderful quotes in this book. Um, talk about creating a, a, a character out of the words of another. I mean, that must be fun and also a little bit dangerous as a writer. How much, you know, do you have, uh, did you have to look for um, permission to get any of the, these quotes? Or are these all in the public domain? How does that work? I made them up. You made them up? See how <laughs> postmodern it can get? What's amazing is that I can make up a quote that is, sounds elegant mm -hmm. and sounds plausible and put it in 
Claire Booth Luce's mouth or Gloria Swanson's mouth, and it will get picked up, and people will quote, subsequently, Gloria Swanson once said, blank, and within a short time it gets wrapped into the internet and on these quote pages. And the things that I've put in the mouths of famous dead people will be documented and will be kind of rolled into the culture as actually true. And welcome to the postmodern age. I, you know, one of the things I would love to see is this as a, as an as an iBook, in a sense, because you could, uh, uh, all those bold faces could just be links, and you could pop up and have little pictures and and have whole histories, part invented, part real. I, I mean, there's, and that's one of the the layers of, of reading ways of experiencing this book is going through it. You can either read it cover to cover as a as a story and, and immerse yourself in, in what happens with, 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 with Hazy and, and Catherine, or you can kind of go through it and, and just be ride the surface of all the details. The longer it takes to assimilate the story to, to really fully understand it on every level, the longer the thing will last in the culture. And uh, so many people had to see Fight Club two or three times before they could really understand how they were fooled at the plot twist. You know, that, that just gives these things a longer life. I, that's what I thought, too, is that um, this is a really interesting, uh, what I was talking about before, you know, the the way you kind of bury the story under this blizzard of, I guess, invented quotes. Uh, talk about writing all these quotes because they are really fun and really funny. Did, at, 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 when you came up with something like this, did you think, oh, this is better for Gloria Swanson than Tallulah Bankhead? Well, I knew that the nature of the quote, that, that at that moment it would need something kind of sweet, something that would summarize what was, was to follow that. And so in a way I would, you know, create the elegant quote and then find a, a person that it would seem very appropriate to and put their name on it. And there was also the nature of, of borrowing the conventions of gossip columns from that time, Walter Winchell's column or Sidney Skolsky's column, and introducing the precedent that they used of creating these kind of slanging terms for social phenomenon, like Walter Winchell called Reno divorces, renovations. <laughs> and Sidney Skolsky referred to lesbians as baritone babes. That was the code for lesbian. And so that introducing that precedent allowed me to ongoingly create these kind of slang terms for, for different things throughout the novel. You know, uh, we've talked about your the way you use uh, repetitions and choruses, and, and we, we encounter that in this novel. Um, and because of the way this novel is written, it's somewhat poetic in a way. I, I think it, there's a lot of poetry in this novel, it, and um, uh, it's somewhat formal in the way that poetry is, is formal. Uh, so I was wondering if, as a writer, do you pace the repetitions and bring them back in the manner of choruses? Do you like, look, say, oh, it's been, it's been 15, you know, uh, 1,500 words since I mentioned the, the last, the, this was the year they were, every other song being what played was this song. Do, do you pace those kind of things and bring them back in the manner of a song? Some of them are devices for, 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 for situating the scene in history. Mm -hmm. ways of phrasing, you know, this is going to be a flashback. We're, we're about to drop back into time and show you something that came years earlier. And it's a way of phrasing that that's very specific to this narrator. 
And some of them are just the kind of delivery timing devices where you need kind of a beat of blank space. You know, there's always, in conversation, there's always those moments when everything falls to silence and everyone sits there waiting for the next topic to be introduced. And when I was little, people would always say, it must be seven minutes after the hour. And the idea was that uh, Christ was crucified and died at seven minutes after the hour. So at that time, seven minutes after every hour, all humanity falls to silence. And subsequently, people say it must be 15 minutes after the hour, because that's when Abraham Lincoln died, was it 15 minutes after the hour. And in Jewish culture, they say a Jewish baby has just been born. And it's just the thing that you say in that silence to break the tension and to allow the introduction of the next topic. So some of that, those kind of poetic choruses are just the thing that you say in the moment when something needs to be said, but not something very important. Of course, Jesus Christ makes an appearance in the book, too. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate form of (laughs) name-dropping. It doesn't get much better than that. You know, I I mentioned uh, poetry, but also I thought this book, if I were to say what this book most reminded me of, I would almost say it's Edgar Allan Poe's the, the the Mask of the Red Death. Huh. I thought I did that with an earlier book. <laughs> you did, but I I think there's a certain um, we talked a little bit about the formality. I think that the formality of this as a horror story, because in many ways it's it's filled with images of terror and and, and horror. Um, it has that kind of formal. Poe feeling. Did you did you think about Edgar Allan Poe as you wrote about this? No, I didn't. But the, the the language is much more formal. It's much more eloquent and elegant because I wrote it in a year in which my mother had lung cancer, fast growing lung cancer, and I would have to sit with her in the hospital and sit with her in the chemotherapy lounges, and then ultimately take care of her in her home. And these were all settings in which uh, there was silence. There was very little talking, and there was no music whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were kind of unbearable places to be where I spent my time writing. And there wasn't the kind of distraction of, of music or television or anything. And this really allowed me to use a much more polished language than I've ever used before. I, I was going to say that this, the, the, the writing of this book um, I, I know that you're very interested in minimalism, and, and you're, you know, one of America's foremost uh, minimalist writers. Um, this is an interesting form. This is, I would say that minimalism still informs the entire structure of this book, but this is like about 15 layers of minimalism put on top of one another like a Lego uh, version of a geodesic dome or something. Right. It really is a just-add-water novel. <laughs> Because it looks like very little. I mean, it looks really fairly thin, but the but the sort of short uh, um, distilled nature of minimalism allows me to do a huge amount with very little elements, very few elements. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I think that well, in many ways, this is a novel that's I think extremely rereadable. When you write books, do you think about people rereading them? And, and you talked about um, 
seen Fight Club several times to, to get what's going on. I think that there are, are many people who could read this three or four times and, and get really different uh, visions of it each time. Yeah, I always kind of count on that, that there are books that you read once, you, you totally understand, um, and then you set them aside, you get rid of them. And the books that I really love are the books like Jesus' Son that I will reread over and over and the books like Amy Hempel's books where there's a certain amount of porousness and ambiguity in the story. And so that every time, at every age, I can come back to that story and it seems like a slightly different story. The Great Gatsby is that, that there's enough vagueness there. And that was a big goal of Fitzgerald's, was to make Gatsby vague enough that, uh, that he would occur in different ways. He would be green one day, he would be yellow one day, like his car. You know, one of the things I, I loved about this book, as I was reading this, I was partway through it, and I realized, you know, this is amazingly weird. This is as weird as anything Chuck has ever done, only you really almost just don't notice it because he's got so many details and such coming at you, and the, the, the weirdness of what's going on and the weirdness of the characters and of the situation and how things are becoming incredibly more twisted. It's just, it's wonderfully, uh, I think, camouflaged or, or it comes up between all those Lego pieces. Well, and I always try to build in a, a kind of paradox in, in which the style works against the content. And so, especially in the kind of murder scenario scenes where, where Catherine Kenton is about to be slaughtered in yet another incredibly involved, unspeakable way, they're written in the language of romance novels that completely overwrought Harlequin romance language. Um, and so you're basically getting this horrific scene written in this hyper-florid uh, romance language. Well, um, also, too, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about creating this, this hazy uh, Coogan character, who's, who's a really fascinating character. Um, she's uh, so controlling, and, uh, and uh, you know, we have the... Um, the, there's the tradition of the omniscient narrator, and, and she's the most omniscient omniscient narrator you could possibly, I think, ever have. She's so omniscient that she rewrites history, because <laughs> her version of things is that she was the original Thelma Ritter, and that everything that we think of as Thelma Ritter's persona, Thelma Ritter stole from Hazy Coogan. So in a way, uh, she's hopscotching, Hazy is, back into the past and claiming that she was Thelma Ritter before Thelma Ritter was Thelma Ritter. And in a way, sort of usurping all our associations with how Thelma Ritter was. And we loved Thelma Ritter. But the ultimate truth about Hazy Coogan is not quite so lovable. <laughs> no. When you talk about uh, Hazy, she's, she's a compelling narrator. We, we, we enjoy reading this book. And, and so, but, so talk about creating somebody who's a, a repellent character who tells a compelling story. That's, that's, a, that's a challenge, and that's, a, a, again, a combination of opposites, one of these things that you, you love to attempt. Well, she presents herself as a fully sort of subjugated character, that she is a servant, and that she is a servant that's grown old. And... She has devoted her life to the service of this movie star, to the creation and the, the maintenance of this 
very high maintenance person. And so in a way that makes her instantly sympathetic and sets her up as someone who has very noble loyalties and allegiances. And that is all an enormous misdirection. <laughs> as she tells the story, one of the things that, that happens, I think, to us as a reader is that we start to, it's a real slow process of, of you know, peeling away all these layers of that she's peppering this with of language and celebrity to, to get to the core of what's actually happening. And I think that's one of the really interesting things. This is, in terms of plot and story, it's a, it's a very simple, straightforward plot, but you do a great job of putting so many layers of misdirection. It goes in this direction, it goes in this direction, it goes in that direction, it goes in that direction. You know, it's four different ways simultaneously on top of the, of, the, of the bottom layer of plot. As a writer, talk about keeping track of all the different directions you're going at once. Yeah, I really kept track of them in terms of what has to happen in each act. But the first act has to involve all the things leading up to a big revelation. The second act has to consist of all of these ongoing murder attempts that each have to be dealt with. And the third act has to ultimately reveal the real nature of, of what's going on. And so just making each act do its specific job um, allowed me to, to keep track of it, to keep track of everything. And also at the very end, in that moment of greatest loss, to introduce the moment when these two women meet, uh, in the 1920s at Central Casting, and that Hazy, who is a kind of a plain, ugly, but incredibly bright actress, recognizes that she needs to align herself with this fantastically good-looking actress who happens to be a little bit dull. And we see in that moment just how their friendship started all those decades before. Did you study a lot of uh, film script writing for this? A little bit, just enough I didn't want to use a kind of filmic language that would exclude the reader, but we've gotten, got, most of us have gotten so sophisticated that we can recognize all these different terms, uh, you know, the, a dissolve or a, uh, a bridging shot or an eyeline match. Mm -hmm. and we recognize enough of the terms that we're not uh, excluded by them. And I didn't want to use language that was so specific that people would feel excluded by it. Well, I was thinking, too, in terms of the structure, you know, the way it's written in three acts and the pacing and each scene, um, that, that's, that really uh, helps us to, to encompass the story and, and enjoy it, too. Because um, So talk about, you know, just the, the, the overall plot arc, how that's informed by film. We're kind of slaves to the three-act structure now because that is the dominant structure in movies, it seems like. And in a way, the acts are also about introducing books within the book. We find out at the end of the first act that a book is being written about Catherine Kenton mm -hmm. that is going to completely scandalize and devastate her reputation. And then in the third act, we find out that yet another book is being written about her that is going to completely, completely mythologize and kind of deify her. And so if you put a book within a book, the inner book makes the outer book, which is still a book, look like reality. That kind of a, a play within the play makes the, the foreground play seem much more real. 
Did that make sense? Yeah, no, that per- makes perfect sense. You're, and it hadn't occurred to me I, until you just talked about this, how uh, metafictional this book is in terms, in, in every way. And one of the things that I think is most interesting, and I think, I think kind of a big theme of this, is the way we rewrite our own lives, the way we rewrite our own history, the way we rewrite all history, the way we edit ourselves to, to turn ourselves into heroes and turn those who we don't like into, into villains. Um, how much of this comes from you know, your experience of your own life? I mean, <laughs> a big part of it came from the awareness as I was taking care of my mom that I was already self, I was already mythologizing her. I was already planning the stories I would tell about how great she was. And she wasn't dead yet. But I already sensed that this is what we do when someone dies, is we really turn them into an incredible story. And, uh, and that's what I was doing already. And I was already turning my participation into a story, because that's what we do. You know, it's in, when you mentioned those two words, my participation, I think that's one of the things that's really most interesting about this book is readers were really part of crafting this story by virtue of the filmic language, by virtue of the layers that you've created. And I think that's what makes this such an interesting reading experience is because, as you said, books can do things that no other medium can do. And, And in fact, I think the a good way to think of the reading experience is the, the writer, you, are, are the screenwriter. And each and every reader is the director as they read, that create that book by reading it. And, and you've just uh, given us the best, you know, a, a literal film script in a manner, in a way of speaking. And on another level, it all came from other people at the beginning. Because parts of it, it was originally, the genesis was something that Sam Rockwell had said while Sam and I were in New York to promote the Choke movie. And it was something so bright and funny. We were eating some boxed lunch at the Fox News Corporation. And he stopped. He was talking about uh, filming the Jesse James movie, name dropping, with Brad Pitt. And he stopped himself and he got very self-conscious. And he said, would you just listen to me? All I say is blah, 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 Brad Pitt, blah, 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 Brad Pitt. It sounds like I have some weird name-dropping form of Tourette syndrome. (laughs) And in that moment, the way he recognized it and phrased it was so clever and nailed it so perfectly that I knew I had to use that. And so that becomes a chorus in the book. Well, and and Tourette syndrome is mentioned, and and you mentioned that very that very uh, fact that this is the book is often described is described by in your by your publicity materials as name dropping uh, via Tourette's and one of the things I think you do that's really interesting is one of the symptoms of Tourette's is not just the profanity but it is inarticulate sounds uh, just <coughs> blah, blah. And, and you you give those to us the animal sounds and a lot of times I think predominantly it's barking that it is people who bark and do make sort of animal-like sounds like you've described. The nature of proper nouns does, with those really odd names, sound a lot more like an animal sound than like a human being's name. 
you know, and it's all so much fun to read. Just, uh, I have to say, if you if you've looked at the San Francisco Chronicle, have you looked at the back section of the sacrament of the the back page of the date book of the San Francisco Chronicle. Is that a, like a society page? It, it's there. It's the uh, bold-faced name-dropping yeah. uh, uh, column by Leah Garchik. It, it's I've been reading it for years. So when I encountered in your book, I go, "Wow, he's turned into Leah Garchik," <laughs> and turned into uh, Page Six and uh, Vanity Fair and all those magazines that have those bold-faced uh, synopses of parties and social goings-on. Well, it's interesting too because. Um, to, to, we all live our lives, you know, in this kind of ground level, yet it's nice, it, when we go to a movie, we go to a movie to escape. I think one of the things that this made me think is that every time we go to a movie or read a book to escape, maybe we don't come all the way back. <laughs> Not if it's a good one. You know, if it is a good movie or a good book, it should have a lasting effect. It should sort of tint the way you perceive the world beyond that. Like when Sam Rockwell said, name-dropping form of Tourette syndrome. It will forever color the way in which I perceive name-dropping and Tourette syndrome. And so if something is really profound in that way, it does have a kind of permanent effect on your perception. I, I think that's right. And, and, you know... When I first saw this book, I thought, oh my God, uh, Chuck has gone completely off the rails. <laughs> it, he's managed to do something really, you know, at, yet that we could never have expected. Uh, you know, a celebrity tell-all, faux celebrity tell-all biography. It's something just so wildly different from um, Fight Club or Snuff. And, and But then about two weeks later, somebody dropped a big pile of uh Celebrity magazines, us, people, blah, 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 blah. For somebody uh, uh, was sick and, and wanted to some you know, fluffy reading, so they just got this giant pile of these magazines. And I was looking at them, and, and after a while, it just was such an assault on my eyes, all these pictures, these people, and their fleshy, you know, some of them, you know, the girls are, you know, they're got everything's hanging out and you know the men are kind of oiled up and I thought you know this is not so different from a big pile of penthouse magazines there is something really corporeal that is really kind of base and of the body in those look who's pregnant look who's fat look who's anorexic there is a really uh, sort of visceral quality to those and, you know, it's the, the antidote to the platonic eternal nature of these icons as Brad Pitt as the, you know, ultimate uh, blonde god. And the, the difference is that while they're alive, you trash them. While they're alive and they have power, you trash them to achieve power yourself. But once they're dead, you can't trash them anymore. Once they're dead, you achieve power by praising them. Well, um, you know, also, too, it, there's a great uh, image and I, uh, to do with the mirror in here, and, and I really love that. And, and as it came back and, and as you extended this, it's so wonderful, I eventually realized the similar, semantic similarities between uh, the word mirror and the word horror. And I started thinking of, you know, Borges and his horror of mirrors. And it's interesting because that mirrors are, that show us, hopefully, uh, at least an image of ourselves, are, are often used as a 
means to frighten or disturb us. They really are reoccurring in the, the whole vampire metaphor, as well as uh, you know, through the looking glass, that there's something about mirrors that makes them reoccurring as, as elements that are really troubling elements in fantasy and horror fiction. And, and we'll talk about your, the way you use the mirror because you have created the, the mirror of Dorian Gray, which is an, a wonderful uh, version of, uh, of uh, kind of a, the celebrity version of horror fiction. The, uh, the idea is that Catherine Kenton is a movie star, so she's always got to look her absolute best. And so that as aging occurs or grief occurs, anything that makes her look not her best, she gets it fixed. She gets it remedied with surgery or some sort of a treatment. But in the moment, the lowest moments of her life when she's in the most pain and she looks her worst, she positions herself in front of a mirror and the most unflattering aspects of herself are recorded by Hazy using a diamond to scratch those parts of her features, the age spots or wrinkles or sags, whatever, scratch those into a mirror so that as Catherine gets these things fixed and stays kind of perpetually pleasant looking, the mirror accumulates all the suffering, the evidence of the suffering of her life that her face doesn't carry. Well, it's so interesting because we see so many uh, media figures who whose faces just go undergo these incredible transformations that uh, that are not aging. It, it's it's something else. It's a character arc in a sense. You know, it's a character arc, but it's also a kind of it works towards a blandness, kind of a, towards a sameness, mm-hmm. where they're, they're they're all seeking the same treatments. And so it, in a way, it makes them all look sort of similar, and they lose their individuality. There's a line in Tell All about, uh, uh, there's nothing like a spotlight to erase any trace of character in a face, that under that sort of big glaring light, all the character lines, all the, the things that have made you an individual are all kind of washed out. Uh, the, the deadly trap of becoming a platonic ideal is that you are no longer human. Well, and also, to some degree, it's capitalism, because we live in a big popularity contest where you have got to kind of maintain a big banality and appeal to the largest audience in order to make the most money. And that, that kind of keeps you very, I'm not sure if mediocre is the word, but very kind of accessible, understandable, uh, simple, so that as many people as possible can engage with you. You always have to be accessible to the lowest common denominator. That has money. That has money. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of uh, talk in this book about awards. And and I love the line uh, that she has where she says, I no longer need the love of every stranger. So talk about awards in in your life and how they've made you feel. The, uh, The in every in minimalism, the idea is to keep your elements really limited. Mm-hmm. The number of characters, I always try to keep it to three main characters and to have through line objects. In this case, it's movie industry awards that she's being given at, at these tributes that initially seem wonderful. They seem very loving and gracious, but are ultimately a, a huge burden that has to be polished and dusted and just accumulates and destroys your life. 
the other aspect is, is setting. Setting has to be kept very limited so that the story will accelerate and there can be much more action without having to stop for description. And things accrue a kind of psychic, uh, psychological weight faster if there are fewer objects, fewer characters, fewer settings. But awards are very nice, but they do tend to pile up. And they are kind of stifling that you've got these things that were presented in really good faith, but they're kind of reminders of what you've done in the past. And they do kind of hold you back. And they're all this kind of perpetual witness saying, why don't you write another fight club? Why don't you write another this? Your glory days are past. And so God bless, but I periodically kind of purge all of those things from my life. And if you go to the recycling station near my home, you will find some really lovely things. <laughs> you know, uh, this book uh, puts readers and puts you in behind the eyes of celebrities and, and with the, the finest clothing, the finest wines and champagnes. And it's a means for both you and the reader to engage in a kind of uh, dress-up. There is a really campy quality. In Not Sense Invisible Monsters have I written a really, really, really campy book. And, and that quality is all over this one. Uh, the, 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 the tawdry nature of this book is, is really wonderful. And you use the language really well to keep that, but hold it back at a distance. We're kind of like looking at everything through a glass that's sometimes really dirty and scungy. And kind of dirty and scungy, what's being depicted is dirty and scungy. But so often the glass is enormously rose-colored. So you're seeing something <laughs> filthy and obscene through this rose-colored glass of romantic language. It, it, that's right. It, and uh, though this looks like a, a book that's going to kind of keep its, you know, be very proper, and, and we think this book is going to be very proper, and for for all the the filth that we see in, in and it's literally filth when, that we see in, in a magazine like Us or People or We or whatever, um, they still don't, they never go to the places that you go in this book, in the way that you go in this book. Uh, there's, uh, this book, there's more than a little bit of snuff in this book. And I think this is, in a way, kind of the flip side of, Scott, uh, of Snuff. That you, this and Snuff are looking at the same thing from the exact opposite sides. You know, there is a commonality of it is about a, a great actress. And in one case, it's a, it's a great actress kind of in the carnal arts of pornography. But in this case, it's a great actress in that kind of uh, pantheon of Grace Kelly and Catherine Hepburn and, and something that is kind of completely not of the body. You know, uh, two, I, I, I love this uh, I concept but of... Maybe that's because my mother's dead, you mm. know? You know, maybe the reason why this actress, Catherine Kenton, is that kind of idealized, glorious character is because, you know, my mother is gone and I'm subsequently kind of turning her into that sort of larger-than-life, sainted, mythological angel. And you, you wrote this in, in the hospital then, right? On a, on a laptop just? Or just... 
scribbling? Scribbling mostly, and then later in her home, I had my laptop and uh, wrote it right up until she died. Did Did she see the end of the book yet, or had you finished the book? No, she was so she was so suffering, and she was so drugged out that it was all we could do to hold a conversation when we did. Um, talk, tell me a little bit about how she felt about your writing. She was thrilled that I was doing it, but it was so not of the world that we lived in that it there was a sense of unreality to it, and she didn't want me to quit my day job. She really insisted that I, I keep my job for as long as possible until one day she called me and she said she was at Costco and they had pallets and pallets of my book, Lullaby, and she had no idea that I was actually making money until she had seen these thousands of books on sale at Costco. And, uh, and even in the year before she died, I was asked to speak at Carnegie Hall and I took her to New York. She'd never been to New York and she saw me speak to this sold-out crowd at Carnegie Hall. And there's something about that that's so outrageous compared to how we were raised that uh, it doesn't occur as reality. It occurs as this strange dream that you've wandered into. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, do you talk about, I guess, your relationship with, with your body of, of work? Um, as a whole, this and I think in a way this is a good this book. Um, actually, maybe this book talks about that, doesn't it? In a sense, your your maybe your relationship with your own celebrity and your own fame. In a way, I feel like hazy. I feel like I'm kind of managing somebody else's celebrity, managing the, the kind of needs of a lot of other people, and that. Uh, I feel kind of like the handmaiden to it all. Not like I'm the one that's kind of looked at. I feel like I'm the one kind of supporting uh, so much of the process. As, uh, as you uh, support this, this guy, Chuck Polinick, who writes all these books, <laughs> um, how, how do you feel about him? I mean, do you sometimes experience your own life as a, as a film written by somebody else? There are moments that are so overwhelmingly moving that I, that I just find myself racing for a drink. Yesterday at the San Francisco airport, a very beautiful young woman with short blonde hair was kind of looking at me at baggage claim. And she had that little smile that usually means they've nailed you. They're going to come over and say hi. And she came over, and I could see that she was kind of she had sort of a, a wobbling walk. She was kind of a limp. And she explained that she had been in Iraq. She was an injured soldier. And she'd spent the last several years working to get out of first a hospital bed and then out of a wheelchair. And now she was ambulatory. She still walked with a cane. And she told me all about her, her life as a soldier in, uh, in Iran, Iraq, Iraq. And that she had loved my books over there and that the soldiers over there really loved my books. And it was all I could do to just listen to her without weeping. I was so overwhelmed. Uh, and those are the moments that, uh, 
that feel the most unreal, that I have a connection with people that I've never met and I'll, I'll likely never meet, and that uh, that's just really difficult to kind of be aware of, so I try not to be aware of it. You know, there's a great quote on the back of this book, which is, every word he's written about me is a lie, including and and the. It, <laughs> which is a reference to what Mary McCarthy had said about Lillian Hellman, and it had led to a huge lawsuit where uh, Hellman sued McCarthy, and uh, the lawsuit kind of destroyed both their lives for a long, long time. Well, talk about uh, Lillian Hellman as an inspiration for this book. She's at the core of it in many ways. She's kind of the, uh, uh, an, a heroine, sort of. <laughs> she is. She is. I use her as kind of a fictional device to demonstrate this, this sort of self-aggrandizing or this, uh, this tendency to use other people to just kind of as supporting characters in your own grand, grand life, which I, you know, I hope it doesn't come across that, that this uh, lovely young woman, that I'm kind of using her as an anecdote. But I thought that Lillian, using Lillian Hellman, who is so heavily accused of this and is also a generation ago, would be a much better example than using a more up-to-date figure uh, who could sue me. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's uh, one of the things that, that's interesting about this book is that it, by going back a generation like that, you really um, bring home the timelessness of, of these, this kind of, uh, the fact that writers are liars. Writers lie for a living. They can't help it. That's what they're paid to do. It's it's in your DNA. So even if you try to tell the truth, maybe you can't, or you can only tell the truth in the guise of a lie. And you start to wonder if you even know the truth, if, if you yourself are even capable. And Clark Gregg, the, the actor who's in... Uh, New Adventures of Old Christina, who was the screenwriter and director and played a role in the Choke movie. Uh, he, he and I once talked about the crisis of being an actor and being married to an actor. He's married to Jennifer Grey. And how, as an actor, you're, you're trained to be able to effectively fake all emotional responses. And so you begin to question the authenticity of your own behavior and of your spouse's behavior. Does she really love me, or is she just acting? And it kind of undermines this idea, this this sort of bedrock sense of reality. I, I like that idea. Yeah, that you can at, at some point you realize you can never know the 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 truth. There's always some other story you can tell. There's always some other way you could spin the story that 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 is your life. And in a way, with the internet and so much sort of cyberbullying where people are constantly kind of spinning untruths about other people and driving, to the, driving them to the point of suicide. We're in a way driving ourselves towards a sense of self-containment and that we'll no longer be bothered by what people say about us. It won't matter how many horrible rumors people start about you. You'll be able to just ignore it. We won't be so sensitive. You know, I, as I read this book, I got partway through, and, and you know, you introduced the, the, the love interest as, as Webster, and then after a while, and you have a, a mannerism where, you're, where you'll talk about somebody as the 
their name. And you, at one point, you refer to him as the Web. And I think, well, that's no coincidence that his name is Webster. I love allegorical <laughs> names. That's why Paige Marshall is named Paige in Choke, because it's a reference to those public address announcements that are coded for emergencies to paging Dr. So-and-so as a fire. I, you talk about uh, creating these characters and names and, and how, how much of this book exists outside the book? I mean, how much did you write about this book that's not in it? Almost the entire book is in the book. Really? Um, yeah, there might be some sort of experiments where I was trying to get the language down and those subsequently didn't go in. But uh, this was pretty much a straight shot. That's amazing. Don't you, it's so compressed and so dense. And there's, I mean, you could explore this book. You could read this book 15 different times and come up with different stories and different visions and different interviews and what, whatever. I mean, don't you feel like all the compressed matter that's in this book is like a, a neutron star in your brain that might explode sometime? You know, my theory is that, that people are such sophisticated consumers of, of narrative now that movies have made us fantastically sophisticated and most narratives don't take advantage of how smart we are. That we, you know, filmic montage has allowed us to create associations and to, uh, to realize things without those things having to be expositorily dictated to us ongoingly. And so I try to play to to the brightness that we have now, that we can be given something really concentrated and really intense, and it will still make sense to us. And that's really interesting because, I mean, that vision of film as something smarter than much text is not, I mean, that's counterintuitive to me. I would, I, I look at films and I think, well, they tell you everything and they're really dumb and in your two hours you can go out and forget about it, whereas a book, you have to create it. But I, but there is a lot of very sophisticated um, association that goes on in a film that's fairly difficult to, uh, to create in a novel, in a written form. And in film, it, it takes place over time. We might be flashed an image at the very beginning that we will keep in our mind as unresolved until the very end, and then somehow that image will be resolved, and there'll be that moment of, aha, that's why they showed us Nicole Kidman under the ice, because that's where she's eventually going to end up, is under the ice. And, and you, you do some, some uh, similar things in, in, in this novel. Do you, could you talk about, uh, it, as you create this book, created this book, how much did you, you know, uh, know in advance? Did you just like start out on page one after your experiments and just go to the end? Usually I know the until the end of act two. And so I knew everything through the end of the sort of murder scenarios. And then the last act is, is my reward. That last <laughs> third is the part that surprises me. Because by then the little machine is fully assembled and it can run itself. And that's the part that I really enjoy. Well, it, it kind of astonishes me because this book is so dense that you could just sit down and even begin to create the prose style in this. Uh, talk about that prose style because it's there are so many layers in it. I mean, it attacks the reader and the narrative from so many uh, perspectives uh, in parallel at once. It's it's like a, uh, 
a Napoleon of, of fiction. <laughs> How did you get those all like um, lined up and going? I mean, did this just like roll, tip, roll off the tip of your pen? Did you, I mean, is this a result of all your research? Yeah, I'm trying to think how to tackle that one. Well, first I got story. I got the idea of, of someone insinuating themselves in the, in the life of a famous person in order to glean enough anecdotes to write a scandalous biography and then to possibly planning the murder of that person so the biography could be published sooner rather than, than, rather than later. And then I had to come up with a nonfiction form that would be organic and serve the story that would be totally appropriate to the story. So it was coming up and doing research into those old gossip columns and all the conventions and devices of those so that I could replicate those and use them for different sort of rhetorical functions within the narrative. And this is going to sound very dry, but functions such as establishing the scene and uh, and creating these kind of beats of reflection and creating choruses that will echo earlier sort of plot points so that they'll always be present in the current moment of the narrative. And so coming up with a story is the smallest part, but then coming up with a nonfiction form and being able to mimic that, being able to, to ape the language of romance novels, uh, that is... That's the more difficult part, but once you internalize it, it becomes second nature. Then it, it's very quick. It's very fast work. So you internalized the um, the the right gossip columns, uh, romance novels, uh, film language, right? And what else? Do you, do you, do you, what are there any other parts that you? And over how long did you do this? And did you like write, try to write a gossip column, or did you try to write somewhere off out there? Are there little bits of a, of Chuck Palahniuk's Harlequin novel, or is there a, a novel upon him? Uh. <laughs> you know, I I probably wrote longer scenes and then cut them down, mm. um, depending on how well they read in workshop. By reading them out loud, you instantly find out where you've overwritten, where the energy starts to fade. But since I know the purpose of each sentence, and in the workshop where I started, Tom Spanbauer would stop us and he would say, okay, why'd you choose that word? And at any point in your presentation, you, you might be stopped and forced to make a case for even the smallest aesthetic choices. So you really had to argue them and, and, and reason them out before you even put them on the page. And so most of the unwritten novel actually happens in my head and in my notebooks and uh, is never keyed in. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm reminded that I, that your very first novel was something like a thousand-page gothic opus, and I think this is that thousand-page gothic opus distilled through uh, maybe 20 years of uh, or more uh, of internalization of writing practice and writing skill. And also... You know, it doesn't need to be a thousand pages because the reader is a lot smarter than I used to think. You know, taking it and testing it in workshop and knowing that people can understand it so readily prevents me from overwriting. I don't have to dictate every revelation to the reader. Uh, that's really interesting. I, how many people are in your workshop? So this novel was workshopped? Yeah, it's about 11 people. And we've been meeting in, on Thursday nights for 20 years. 
20 years of That's, Thursday nights. <laughs> that sounds like a lucky workshop to, to get to hear you read. Well, you know, we're all really good, typically at different things, mm-hmm. and we complement each other. Uh, so I think we're all lucky. Your work involves a lot of this internalization that you talked about. So I'm wondering what you're working on now, what you're internalizing now, and how much, how aware you are of what's going on in your creative mind so that whether or not you understand what's going to come out next. If I'm really lucky, I don't understand what I'm working on. Because the moment I start to realize what I'm telling people, I start to freeze up. And my, my hope is that I don't really realize what I'm working on until a year later when I'm on tour, because it would freak me out to realize how much I'm saying. But for next year, I've been working on a book called Damned, which is about a, a, an 11-year-old girl who basically wakes up and realizes that she's in hell. She's dead and she's in hell, and she's going to be 11 years old in hell for the rest of eternity. And she really misses and she really loves her parents who are still on earth. So the book is about her kind of making friends and coming to terms with being in hell and and then trying to make hell a much better place, kind of Pollyanna in hell. And the truth is that both my parents are dead now. My father's been dead for 11 years and my mother's been dead for a year. And I miss them and I love them very much. But I don't want to write a novel about how much I miss and love my parents who are dead. So instead, I invert it and write about a dead person who misses her parents who are still alive and on earth. And so I'm able to have this cathartic experience and process my upset by fictionalizing it, by turning it into a comedy. You love comedy, and you're so good at it. And there's, this book is very funny, um, and yet also dark. Tell me a little bit about how comedy helps you personally. I think it's a Ukrainian thing. I think if you genetically come from a part of the world that's always been somebody's slave or somebody's serf, and is always being somebody's battlefield, and never really, really wins. You develop this kind of comic fatal stoicism, and you realize that the sometimes the only power you have is to turn something into a funny story, and get a laugh out of it. I've been speaking with Chuck Palahniuk. His new book is not Love Slave. It's Tell, Tell All. <laughs> Thank it's you not- for joining me, Chuck. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.